This is Ray Shackleford, and on this week's episode of Empower, I'm joined by Ms. Camila Thomas as we talk about trauma in the black community and how we can cope with everything we're dealing with in our country today. Empower is a podcast presented by the Houston Area Urban League that serves to inform young professionals about the Urban League, its programs, and the various civic and social topics pertinent to the community they serve. Good evening. This is Ray Shackleford. Good morning, good afternoon, whenever you are listening to the Empower podcast. I want to welcome everyone back for this week. And today, uh, our special guest is Miss Camila Thomas. Camila, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Ray. <laughs> I know you're just finishing up work, and so I thank you for uh, taking our time today to talk to us, talk to the listeners, and educate them. Uh, but before we get into the conversation and what we're talking about today, I did want to briefly touch on how you came to know the Urban League and join YP. Um, I actually heard about it when I was living in Atlanta, Georgia, and then when I relocated to Houston uh, while I was in grad school, that was one of the organizations that I wanted to be a member of. I was really looking um, forward to being a part of an organization of other young Black professionals who were really passionate about helping their community. And so I participated in a couple of different um, social events and just following you guys. And then I became an official member uh, sometime last year. Okay. That's awesome. So I didn't realize you got or heard about uh, during your time in Atlanta and then got connected with us here locally. So that's awesome. So yes, for those that don't know, we don't just exist in Houston. Uh, it is a national organization. And so we have YP chapters in more than 60 cities across the country have actual Urban League affiliates, the nonprofits that we serve uh, in more than 90 cities across the country. So a huge network, national organization. Uh, we actually turned 110 later this year. So uh, today, what we want to talk about is trauma associated with what is currently going on uh, in the country. And so a few weeks ago on one of our episodes, we got a chance to talk to a couple of our YP members about the murder of Ahmaud Arbery uh, as it relates to the McMichaels uh, and killing that young brother just for being out and jogging. And we've seen time and time again in this country where black men have been killed uh, for no apparent reason, whether it is by uh, white citizens and the, the instance with Ahmaud Arbery, more recently with Breonna Taylor, and uh, George Floyd, uh, both were killed by police. Brianna Taylor uh, via a no-knock warrant uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, and George Floyd uh, by an officer that had his knee on his neck for an excess of eight minutes, I believe eight minutes and 46 seconds to be exact, uh, and that ultimately resulted in his death. And uh, it is something that has sparked a number of protests, uh, riots, demonstrations across the country, I believe, uh, last reported, it was more than 140 cities where they've seen some type of activity. Uh, and so we felt like it was necessary to look at it through the lens of, okay, we see these videos, uh, they're pushed out on social media, we see the articles, these things are happening all the time. And the reality may be is that these things have always been happening, but they weren't recorded and they weren't pushed out via media. 
And so now there is, you know, the fear of desensitization. Um, you know, am I experiencing PTSD? And so these are all the things that some YPs have reached out about, they're concerned about. And so I was like, let's get an expert so we can actually diagnose these things appropriately versus, you know, what we typically do on WebMD, try to Google things and figure it out ourselves. And that is not a good practice. Um, and so, yes, I'll be quiet and let you at least uh, open up the conversation as it relates to those things. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm speaking from the realm of a licensed clinical social worker with 14 years experience in the field and been in private practice where I specialize in working with um, Black women and, and their families. Um, and so there's a lot that's happening right now. And I think we're seeing a range of emotions that people are experiencing depending on what side of the coin um, to look at. And so some people may be questioning, do I have a right to feel angry or maybe I don't feel anything or I feel sad. And the first thing I want to say is that nobody can tell you how to feel. You feel exactly how you feel and it's okay. Um, I think our thoughts and um, our behaviors are a combination of things that we were exposed to, our lived experiences, our cultural, religious, political values, and, you know, education level. But if we look at statistics, um, according to the Mental Health of America, 20% of the American adult population may experience any type of mental disorder in a given year. Specific to Black Americans or those who identify as African American, that's 16%. And so the other thing to think about is that African Americans are 20% more likely to report any type of psychological distress compared to their white counterparts. And we are the most discriminated against um, ethnic group, period. And so I think we're seeing a lot of that currently. If we look at some of the clinical terms, there is what's called racial battle fatigue. And this term was coined in 2008 um, by William Smith. And basically it references a natural race-related stress response due to constantly facing racially dismissive, demeaning, insensitive, and hostile racial environments or individuals. And so what happens is that for people of color, this can be a daily battle of attempting to try to like deflect any kind of racism, stereotypes, discrimination, and predominantly white spaces. And so sometimes people may feel like, oh, it's so draining or exhausting to have to tell people, how, uh, tell white people how they can um, be more culturally sensitive or things that they can do or why I have to explain why my hair looks this way, right? That can just be emotionally um, draining. The other thing to think about is that there is racial trauma or also um, some people may refer to it as race-based stressors. And these are going to be the historical and the cumulative effects of any real or perceived racism, discrimination, or microaggressions that affects the person's mental, emotional, cognitive, and their behavioral health. And so with the racial trauma, this can happen whether it's direct, that we're seeing with unfortunately the lives that were lost, or also indirect, which I think a lot of people are experiencing, meaning they themselves did not experience that trauma or that hurt, but they're still experiencing some of the same feelings that that person may have by, you know, hearing stories, reading articles, um, watching things on the news or social media. 
The other part is that there's secondary trauma or what's also known as vicarious trauma. And this is what I call the emotional residue from the indirect exposure to the trauma. So again, I may not have experienced it personally, but I'm still having these emotions associated with it. And I think what you just referenced, Camila, I know for me personally, I experienced it with um, Philando Castile um, when he was killed. And this is a few years back when I was working in uh, sales in corporate America. And I was driving, uh, I think coming back from Galveston or from one, another one of my accounts. And I just started crying. And it was like the day after I had watched the video. And honestly, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I didn't know what to think. Um, I think I self-diagnosed myself as that probably being like PTSD or something like that based on like what I Googled. But the reality is I have no clue what that ultimately was. Um, but I find that a lot of our young professionals are um, experiencing similar emotions where they find themselves crying. Um, I think experiencing a lot of what you referenced as race-based stressors uh, where they feel the need, especially in the workplace, to have to explain what is going on or deal with the, the ignorance in terms of not even the acknowledgement of some of these things taking place. And so I've seen in the past and even recently, a lot of people saying, you know, they wish they could call out while being black or uh, there was an article on LinkedIn about um, the stress associated with, you know, everything that being black you have to deal with. And then you still expect it to go to work and just mm -hmm. act like nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And so could you kind of speak to, I guess, what those things are in terms of, um, the, the formal terms or what some of those diagnoses are? Yeah. So it sounds like what you experienced, and I think many other people who are having such emotional reactions to what's happening now, is the secondary or vicarious trauma, right? So you're absorbing the trauma from other people who have actually happened to. And so um, the symptoms of that can look very much like PTSD, and I'll talk about what that looks like. The difference is, is that PTSD, which stands for post-traumatic stress disorder, is that the trauma is in the past, right? So we're, what we're trying to do is help the person cope in the present with what has happened in the past. The problem with what's happening now is that we are constantly still being re-exposed. So it's like we're still living in the trauma, which makes it a lot harder to be able to deal and cope with. So some of the things that people may be feeling um, are, you mentioned the anger, um, definitely anxiety, um, the crying, um, what we call hypervigilance. So it could be somebody who has an increased alertness to danger, right? So you're kind of constantly on edge, um, trying to feel like you have to be on guard or hyper arousal, which is the jumpiness that people may feel when they're in certain spaces. Um, some people may just numb out because emotionally it's just too much for them to process. So they just like, the way my body has to cope is just to just feel nothing. Um, there are also to be feelings of guilt, 
There can be feelings of hopelessness, of helplessness, uh, with the anxiety. It could be fear of the unknown. It could be the increased heart rate. It could be the stomach issues, um, panic attacks, trembling and shaking. All of these are, um, are symptoms of the vicarious or the secondary trauma. And over time, if this happens, if we continue to have different traumatic experiences, whether it's indirect or direct, it can lead to, you know, depression, anxiety, um, increased substance use to be able to try to cope and deal with what's happening. Um, and also feelings of hopelessness and unfortunately, suicide. Mm. So it is serious and it has not only short term effects, but also long term. Because you have to think our body is trying to protect ourselves from, again, either the perceived danger or real danger. So even for myself, I think I have, I have not had a lot of interaction with police officers, but the handful of times that I may have been, you know, pulled over for a minor traffic violation or something, it's been fairly positive. However, I still notice myself getting anxious. I still notice myself shaking a little bit. You know, I may notice that my heart rate has increased and I'm being very aware of the things that my dad taught me when I was younger and I first started learning to drive about keep your hands on the steering wheel. Um, I typically keep my wallet in my purse, right? So when they ask for your driver's license, don't just reach over, right? You need to tell him I'm you know, my driver's license is in my wallet that's in my purse that's sitting right here on the passenger side. Do I have your permission to go, right? And so all of these things are running through my head. Again, I have not had any direct trauma or negative experiences with the police, but I am very aware of things that are happening to people who look like me when they, you know, come into contact with some police officers. No, and I think that's a great point because what you referenced, I think is, you know, a part of the black experience irrespective of, you know, where you grow up in the country, you probably have had a conversation with your parents or they had a conversation with you about how you interact with police and what that should look like, how you should handle yourself in order to make sure that you get home. Mm -hmm. And I think in this moment, especially over the last few years, based on the videos that we've seen, the, the anxiety and the trauma is heightened because you see instances where people do everything you were told you were supposed to do mm -hmm. to make it home, and you still see them killed, you see no repercussions, and that's how I think we've gotten to at least one of the boiling points that we're currently experiencing um, as people, you know, don't know how to cope and deal on top of the fact that we were already in the midst of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't even know if there's something uh, from a clinical standpoint that speaks to um, this double trauma or I'm probably saying that wrong, but no, basically no. The, the compounded trauma. Thank you. They're all they're all stressors. So whether it is the police brutality, if it's the impact of COVID nineteen, if that means there's financial loss, employment loss, um, just being stuck at home and not really being able to kind of get out and move around and have the in person human um, connections that a lot of people need, all of the you know all of those adjustments. So I think it's one thing after another after another after another, and then you know people become overwhelmed. Um, 
and way to speak to your point that so many of us and so many people who have lost their lives that we've never even been able to know their names the assumption is is that well what did they do right because for some people the police are called when there's danger there's a crime happening or somebody needs help so why would they do something to you if you didn't do something first we know that just the color of our skin our blackness unfortunately is seen as a threat to some people and so i think when people are talking about we're tired we're frustrated it's like we're trying to figure out how not to get killed either right we're trying to figure out what we need to do to go home to our loved ones so you say you know have a receipt for anything you buy it at a store you say don't move too fast you say do this you say do this and it's like okay well we've done all of those things and still people get killed and so it's like is it really us or is it them no. And that's right. And so we get frustrated because we're trying to do this. That don't work. We try to do this. That doesn't work. We try to do this. That doesn't look like what else do we need to do? So I think you're seeing an eruption of so many different emotions on top of other stressors that 2020 has <laughs> has brought to us. And so people just don't know what else to do. No, and that's you know, as I've done personally more uh, personality assessments, look at like social emotional intelligence, you know, you're taught to look inward as it relates to different interactions. And, you know, what could I have done differently to change, you know, the outcome? And I think to your point just there, America, Black America is at a point where we've done the introspection we've looked at you know what we could have done differently in these different instances and at the end of the day it's not about us mm -hmm. this is not you know us that is calling causing uh black people to be killed at such alarming rates uh, by people that we would think are intended to protect us but even when you mentioned you know the whole well why were they called there must have been a reason we saw over the past week there was a video that surfaced from a woman, I want to say in the New York area, uh, actually the same, in Central Park, uh, the okay. same place where uh, the unfortunate, you know, false accusations from the documentary with Ava DuVernay, uh, When They See Us. And she called the police on a black man who was a bird watcher, uh, graduate of Harvard University, because he was telling her to put a leash on her dog and there were signs up um and because she didn't like a black man telling her what to do she decided to say i'm gonna call the police and attempted to weaponize mm -hmm. uh the police against this man and thank god that it didn't result in something similar to ahmaud arbery uh, brianna taylor or george floyd um where his life would have been lost and so it's i mean we can go back and forth about all these different things and i guess one of the things i want to get to is how do people start to cope or deal with things these things process them because one of the things i've also had expressed to me is people talking about uh they don't want to see the videos because it's triggering um you have those that they don't know how to feel so i think like you said, they may be numbing themselves because they're just like, okay, it happens so often. And then there are those 
that are in leadership that they don't want to look at the videos, but they kind of have to because they have to be able to speak to it and respond to it. And so it's almost like you're subjecting yourself to trauma over and over again um, in an effort to serve your community. And so that's, you know, three different uh, point of views, but each of them important. And so could you speak to that? And then we'll uh, start looking at like, how do people cope and um, actually deal with these things? Mm -hmm. So I think it's really going to be important for everybody to figure out what self-care and coping skill looks like for them, because it's going to be different. Um, the first thing I would say is to be able to acknowledge your feelings because they're real and they're valid. And sometimes just being able to say, you know what, I'm really anxious right now. I'm really angry right now. I am really frustrated right now to just give names to what it is that you're feeling. The second thing I would say is to find safe spaces for people to, one, have their feelings validated and also to have open and honest conversations about their feelings and what it is that they're experiencing. Because I think in certain spaces, I've had a couple of people reach out to me where um, this, particularly today or even Friday, um, some of their managers at work have brought this up on Zoom calls. And that in itself has triggered so many different emotions. Um, you know, one of my friends said it, it triggered her so bad she had to turn the camera off, you know, in the middle of the Zoom meeting and try to get herself, you know, together, that she didn't even feel safe enough to be able to express how she was really feeling because she was the only Black person um, in that department. And so for her, she kind of felt singled out by that. Um, so I encouraged so, her, like, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, cause I, I didn't want to miss that right there. You, you talked about creating safe spaces. And so I have had um, some of my white counterparts, people who I may not typically hear from after things like this, reach out to me because they want to help. They, they don't know what to do. And so I think probably in that instance that you're referring to, they probably, I would think, felt the need to acknowledge it, but they didn't know that that would be triggering. So how do they go about creating safe spaces? And this is a little difficult to answer because part of the racial battle fatigue is putting the responsibility black on black people that we have to spend the time and energy to educate white people about their own racism. We know what it looks like. Y'all need to talk to each other and figure that thing out, right? Because we can tell you all day long, but are you really receiving it? When it comes from someone who does not look like you, are there defensive walls that come up? As opposed to, will white people possibly feel more comfortable having open conversations amongst themselves? And hopefully there are some allies in that group that can help you know, navigate that conversation. Um, so I think you're also right in the sense that for our allies, the people that want to help, they really don't know what to do. And that was something that I explained to my friend was that I think your manager didn't want to be silent at all. She wanted just to acknowledge what was happening. Um, and now specific to that friend, she is raising a, I think her son is 19 now and they live in LA. And what she told me was that since the day he was born, she has lived with constant anxiety every single time he leaves her eyesight. 
And unfortunately, mm. that can be the reality of Black parents raising Black children in this world. And unfortunately, still in 2020. So when her manager acknowledged it, it just brought up the anxiety that she already had, you know, on a daily basis, just concerned about the whereabouts, you know, the well-being of her son whenever he leaves their home. So, and I, I get it's not an easy, easy fix or an easy answer. You're talking about creating safe spaces, but I think part of what, what I took away from what you said was that one, the additional stressor or, or trigger um, is based on the fact that we have to explain to white people why these things are racist and wrong. And so that's mm -hmm. just draining in itself because it is so apparent. Mm -hmm. um, but then let's say you are the only black person on your team. You shouldn't be subjected to, even if it is just to acknowledge that conversation um and i don't know how to instruct i guess them to check in or and maybe that's more like an eap thing in terms of uh those assistance programs but um they they don't know what to do and for me i at least appreciate the acknowledgement I'm more focused on the action that's going to follow. So even um, we've seen some corporate entities start to issue statements like Nike, uh, Reebok. I saw something from uh, Verizon a couple of hours ago. They actually have now issued uh, $10 million to different civil rights and social justice organizations, uh, including the National Urban League. And so that's what I'm more focused on is substantive action steps. But for those that are just trying to take a step, um, should they just give the black employee space? Should they allow, but then it's like, you don't want to put the burden on black leadership to then facilitate. So what, I don't, it's, what is it's, it's so tricky. Um, acknowledging is, it, is, is, is absolutely fine. Just to say, we are aware, we see you and, and we hear you. And maybe just saying, I'm an ally. Um, I think participating in some of the protests, they can do that if they want to have their feet on the ground. But we know that, you know, money helps. Uh, they can also help by their choices when they go to the voting booths. Because if we're talking about systemic, you know, racism and oppression, that's, that's way higher than on the ground. Right. And so change typically has to start from the top and trickle down. So, you know, there's there's tons of different ways that they can help. Um, it's, it's just going to vary what people are comfortable with. But I think for um, people in the workspaces is just to be able to set healthy boundaries. You have to figure out what you're comfortable with and what you're not. And so, you know, for this particular friend, she had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with her manager um, who brought it up again. And so for her, she said, I appreciate you acknowledging it, but I would just prefer, you know, to, to keep this meeting um, focused on work. 
but she has other outside supports that she can be open and honest about her feelings. She just chose to keep those separate because again, you never know who you're sharing a cubicle with. You never know who you're talking with in the water cooler, right? And so depending on what she may say could rub people the wrong way, which then could cause bigger issues in the workplace. So that was how she chose to deal with it, right? She called me to get her emotions out and then say, so what do I, what do, what do I want to do, you know, in this workplace? Other people, um, you know, I had another client, same thing. Her manager talked about it today and they're trying to bring in trainers to talk about cultural sensitivity. So, you know, there's a, there's a variety of ways that, that people can handle it. I think it's going to be up to the organization and individually set boundaries on the type of conversations that you're willing to have or not willing to have. Even if, you know, friends or people are tagging you in different um, articles or sending you things, if it becomes too much and too overwhelming, hey, I appreciate your concern and want to share, but I'm good. It's, it's a little too much for me. No, and I think that's that's great advice because each organization is going to want to support uh, to a different level. Like mm -hmm. you said, some of it may be bringing in people to do training. Uh, some of it may be financial, but it's important to check in with those individual employees to see where they want to uh, deal with it and how they want to deal with it to make sure that they are comfortable uh, because, you know, when you talk about even those trainings coming into play, some black people may not want to be subjected to, like you said, a training where they're aware of it because mm -hmm. they live it. Um, so it's, it's not about me helping you guys get up to speed. You need to do this work. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can coexist better moving forward. So um, absolutely. I think another thing that workplaces could do, because you have to think a lot of these things um, occur, or at least the protests, maybe like Wednesday um, through through the weekend, and a lot of Black people are struggling. It's like, man, I have to go to work or at least get on a Zoom call with people that I'm not really feeling right now, right? And so I think on an individual basis, again, can we be more aware of where we are emotionally and mentally and, and take a PTO day? Right, take a mental health day to really process your feelings. So when you have to go back in certain spaces, you're not allowing that to impact, you know, your job. Um, that's, I think you know, that's there difficult. are EAP, which stands for the Employee Assistance Program, which typically are um, anywhere I've seen from three to eight um, therapy sessions that the organization pays through, through, for um, through their insurance benefits that are at no cost to the employee. So, you know, as we're talking about coping, I would highly, highly, highly recommend going to see a therapist to really have an unbiased, non-judgmental person to help you process what you're feeling. And I will add to that a culturally sensitive therapist who really can understand what it is that you're experiencing. Because unfortunately, a lot of people of color have gone to therapists who are not culturally sensitive and they are kind of like re-traumatized when their feelings are dismissed or invalidated or I think you're being too sensitive, I think you're overreacting, and that just causes more hurt, hurt and pain. No, and I'm glad you said that because you know, your initial point where you were talking about taking a PTO day, I think the difficult thing, especially over the last few weeks, is these things have been back to back to back to back. 
And so it's like, okay, I took a PTO day, then I come back and now it's something else. Mm-hmm. And so I think to have the mental health professional and those sessions uh, is critical because we are getting hit at, you know, from so many different directions. Um, you know, it's impossible and it shouldn't be expected for anybody to be able to process all of those emotions uh, and feelings on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for those that um, may not have access to EAP, and when we keep using that term, we're talking about employee assistance uh, programs that provide benefits, uh, specifically the mental health portion. Uh, but for those that may be looking for resources, where could we potentially direct them, uh, whether it's you know national or local, what what would you have that they could go to? Um, if they're looking for therapy, I would definitely check um, if they're employed with health benefits, their um, human resources department to ask about um, just their general benefits. And if you don't want to tell your HR person, which I totally understand, like, hey, what are my mental health benefits? If you have your insurance card, you can just call the member services number. It's typically an 800 number on the back of the card. And you can just ask them um, what your mental health benefit coverage plan looks like. Um, and also ask specifically about about EAP. Um, I am a participating therapist on the Therapy for Black Girls um, therapy directory, um, which is national. And also, I think they're also including therapists in Canada. Um, now, that platform is specific to um, therapists who work with Black women and girls. However, there's also melanin and mental health that has a therapy directory of um, clinicians of color. Okay, that's awesome. And there's some other ones. I mean, you can always contact your insurance um, directly. So like if you have Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Cigna, Aetna, TRICARE, what have you, you can ask for a list of um, in-network clinicians of color. So that way you make sure um, that they do accept your insurance and it's someone, you know, who looks like you, if that's that's the preference. Yes, and I actually did um, go through that process before where I reached out to the EAP uh, told them that I wanted a black therapist um, and they were able to give me, like you said, a directory mm-hmm. or a list of those people within a certain like mile radius that met the criteria and were in network. Absolutely. Um, and so that, that process, it probably took something like five to 10 minutes. It's not a long process. Um, they shoot you an email and then you, of course, have to do your due diligence about figuring out who you ultimately want to go with. Um, but you know, the culturally sensitive piece that you mentioned before, that was a reason that I wanted to make sure, outside of just supporting, you know, black business, uh, black professionals, but I wanted to make sure that, you know, as I spoke through different things that we deal with, especially, you know, as YPs and Urban League, as black people that are trying to move things forward, um, I needed whoever I'm talking to, to understand or have some uh, similar experience to what, cause I don't need to have to, I don't want to have to explain that when I'm in therapy. Like that's not, I'm not here to teach you. I'm here to, okay. to get help. Yep. Um, and so I think that's very important for people to understand what that looks like. And are there any other things you should tell them they should look for uh, when it comes to a therapist um, in addition to being culturally sensitive or informed? 
Um, I think just thinking about the type of person that you may feel comfortable um, opening up to and being emotionally vulnerable. So is gender a factor? Um, we've talked about race or ethnicity. Does age matter? Um, some people may want more faith-based counseling. So, I mean, there's, there's tons of different therapy and styles, but the biggest thing, who would I feel more comfortable opening up with? And so as you're going through the therapy directories, you can, you know, possibly do filters or like yourself, if you're talking to someone directly on the phone, tell them this is, this is what I'm looking for. And one thing I forgot to uh, point out that you mentioned was about the experience when it comes to parents, mothers, fathers that have young black kids. I've even seen over the last week or so uh, parents who are expecting, who posted images and referenced, you know, they're concerned about the current state of the world. Uh, but of course, you know, they're excited about, um, you know, the, the upcoming birth of their child. And so, you know, I have uh, young nephews, you know, five years old, et cetera. So they're a while before they'll be venturing out on their own. But nonetheless, um, I think the concern is extremely valid. And so what would you, I guess, suggest to those parents that uh, are experiencing that or dealing with those types of uh, thoughts? One, acknowledging what you're feeling and find people who can validate it because it is. Once that baby, you know, comes out of your womb, they enter the world. And unfortunately, they can be subjected to so much. Um, I think kind of understanding what you want your child to know about the world and their interactions with the police. Um, when you think they're ready to have the conversation, what that looks like, um, but making sure that it's age appropriate. Um, because kids are hearing and saying things too. Um, and so we wanna make sure that they have some understanding and clarity in a space for them to talk about any feelings that they are having because they may be scared too. We don't know how they're processing their blackness. Do they see themselves as a bad, you know, little black boy or a criminal, but you know what I mean? And so it's all of these things. So I think as a family being clear, what is the message that we want to send? What do we want to teach our children? And then what is the best way for us to have an appropriate, age appropriate conversation? Because that may change as they start getting a little bit older and they start driving and going to parties and, you know, things of that sort. But it's, it's a, it is a real fear, very real. And no, even no. though I don't have children, you know, I'll be honest and say that thought has crossed my mind. Do I really want to bring a child into this world right now? Yeah, and I, I do have a daughter and her, we just got through talking about the whole coronavirus because she was kind of freaked out by that. Mm -hmm. um, I think rightfully so. Um, nobody at least alive. I don't think anybody is still alive from the Spanish flu. Or if they are, <laughs> they, um, I don't, I don't know them. And so, you know, living through a pandemic, um, is something that is not normal. Mm -hmm. And I've been, you know, hopeful about how she's processed those things and I, I check in. And so this is now another thing, um, that I have to check in with her to see, you know, how she's feeling, how she's processing those things. So I think that was good guidance to give uh, to parents. And like you said, age appropriate, because, you know, with her being 10, 
um, the conversation is different versus if she was, like you said, in high school or, or college, because there's more so unsupervised um, being out in the world. And so um, I think that's very, very critical for people to realize and understand. Is there anything that we didn't touch on you think that people would need to know specific to our topic today and coping and and I know it's 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 a much more uh, expansive conversation, but in the, in the time we did have, was there anything else that you wanted to touch on? Yes, I did just want to review um, some other ways that people can practice self-care and cope. So in addition to acknowledging the feelings, finding safe places for you to have honest conversations, um, I will also say try to limit um, your news exposure or what you're looking at on social media. So again, we're not being re-traumatized, um, being able to set healthy boundaries with other people in regards to what you're willing to talk about, what you're not. Um, therapy, always. Um, if someone is spiritual, and that could look like prayer, meditation, yoga, anything to kind of find healthy outlets to release all of the emotions that we're feeling so they don't stay bottled up. Because just like a soda can, right, if it keeps getting shaken, if it's not settled, when we take the, it's just going to explode. And so I think we're seeing that in a variety of ways, um, you know, on, on the news right now. We talked about taking a PTO day if you need to for work, um, participating in any social justice causes specific to these challenges right now, and also make sure that we're getting adequate sleep and exercise because those two things on top of healthy nutrition just impact our physical and emotional health anyway. But the biggest thing is find a way to get it out. And sometimes just being able to talk to people helps because we're just not, again, we have a healthy outlet and we're not keeping things bottled up. It's like, I can't fix it, but at least felt better just to get it off of my chest with other people who understand and can validate me. No, I think that's, that's awesome. Let, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. One more thing. Um, there are a couple books that I wanted to recommend as well. Um, the first is the Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health um, by Dr. Rita Walker. And Ray, I can send you these titles and the authors um, if you want to yes. send it out to... Please do so we can post that to social media. Okay. So the Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health. There's also Black Pain that I'm currently reading by Terry Williams. Another book is The Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. And the fourth book is Everyday Microaggressions by Dr. Daryl Sue. And I've used um, quite a bit of his work as I'm doing the cultural sensitivity trainings that I offer to organizations. Okay. Um, the, the last thing I want to touch on real quick um, before we close out is have you completed your census? I have. I did mine <laughs> electronically. And how long did it take you? Less than five minutes. Okay. That's faster than most people. And why did you feel the need to complete that? I felt it was my due diligence as a citizen. <laughs> and so for those people that may be joining us uh, for the first time, each and every week, irrespective of the topic, we make sure to touch on the importance of the census. It happens once every 10 years. We are in that 10 year time period now, and it brings hundreds of billions of dollars back to our community to fund schools, hospitals, 
uh, full school funded lunch programs and a number of different things. And part of that money actually comes out of your tax money. So it's money that is owed to you where if you don't complete it, it doesn't just go away, it's going somewhere else. And so we want that money to come back to our communities. We are historically undercounted. We are talking about black people. Uh, so we wanna make sure that, make, that we make black count. That's part of the National Urban League's uh, campaign to ensure that people are completing the census. You can do that by going to my2020census.gov. I want to thank our guest today, uh, Ms. Camila Thomas, who has given us a wealth of information in a very short period of time. Uh, she is somebody who is not only serving in the community, but doing the day-to-day -day work from a clinical perspective to make sure that Black people are mentally healthy, which is very, very critical. And I'll just do a quick plug to myself. Um, again, I am a licensed mental health professional here in the um, greater Houston area, specifically in Bel Air. Um, I'm the owner of KBT Counseling and Consulting, which is a private practice that specializes on Black families. So if anyone who is in the greater Houston area or is a Texas resident, we are offering both in-person and virtual sessions. Um, reach out if you feel like you can benefit from a counseling session. Um, I do accept Cigna, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and Aetna. So we are here. Um, contact work number is 346-800-7543. Um, the website is www.kbtcounseling.com. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook at KBT Counseling, where I post tons of mental health tips, resources, motivational quotes, and articles just to be able to help and heal us. So I am in the community um, specializing on working with us. No, thank you for that. Please make sure to support Camila and her business. Uh, again, she's doing the work. And make sure that everyone listening is still following the guidance of the CDC uh, the coronavirus is still here. It is not gone. Uh, be safe, wear masks, uh, practice physical distancing where it makes sense, and take care of your mental health. Thank you for joining us, and we will see and talk to you guys again next week. To learn more about how the Houston Area Urban League is impacting the community and ways you can get involved, visit us online at haul.org. Follow us on Twitter at HOU Urban League and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play or whichever podcasting platform you enjoy. Thanks for listening to Empower, presented by the Houston Area Urban League.